This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. As COVID-19 spread across the United States, governments ordered shutdowns of so-called non-essential businesses and businesses in turn furloughed, fired, or laid off workers. The distinction among those matters when you're trying to count up unemployment. Bruce Yandel is the former dean of Clemson University's College of Business and Behavioral Science. He also produces a quarterly economic report for the Mercatus Center. We talked about unemployment in the wake of COVID-19 and other strange effects of the virus and the related government interventions. Bruce, you produce a quarterly economic report. What have we learned uh, from the coronavirus about our economy? Wow, what a question. I do turn out a quarterly report, and the most recent one was posted on June the 1st. Uh, but as you know, with the coronavirus, every day is another day full of news and data. But we have learned some things. Um, I think the first thing that I would say we've learned is it's a whole lot easier to close down an economy than to start one up after it has been closed. And so right now, anyone who is attempting to explain what the economy is doing, I would suggest has to first take into consideration that they are looking at a biological phenomenon. And so then it's a guess as to what the virus is doing. Is it accelerating? Is it mutating? Will there be another spike? And so assumptions have to be made about the virus. Then secondly, you have to make some assumptions about what state governors and mayors of cities will do with respect to opening or closing their economy. And then having stumbled through all of that, you think, well, what about interest rates? What about trade? What about things we normally think of when trying to track our economy? And right now, of course, there are people who are brave enough to make forecasts. And uh, so we know what those forecasts are. And then there's some other daily data that we get that give us some signals, some pretty good signals, I would say, about where we are today. All right. So uh, w- you say that it's a bold process to be engaged in any kind of forecasting uh, right now. Uh, with respect to employment, we've never seen uh, a spike in unemployment like the one we saw uh, in March and April. Um, is there anything we can say with confidence about what that means? I mean, it's coming down now, it appears, but uh, uh, what Is there anything that we've learned since that spike in unemployment that uh, should make us feel better or worse? There are some things that should make us feel better. When we, on the surface, uh, when we got the data, the most recent data, first Friday in June, saying that two and a half million names had been added to payrolls across the economy, uh, that was doggone good news. Two and a half million is a big number. Indeed, the largest number on a monthly edition as far back as the eye can see. Uh, then, of course, that generated a an unemployment number that was down from April's unemployment number, but still, as you indicated, the largest since the 1930s. But when we look at those data, when we engage in discussions with regard to the data, We have to be cautious because there are a large number of people who are not working, who do not think of themselves as being unemployed, 
they think of themselves as being furloughed, which is what they were told by their employer. And so that means each month when the telephone survey takes place by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the nice voice says, is there anyone in this household who is unemployed and looking for work? It's quite possible that the person speaking thinks, I'm not unemployed, I'm furloughed. And so the answer is no. Then another person, identically situated, might answer yes. And so we have some difficulty interpreting that data, which says, be cautious. That said, we're still back to two and a half million names that have been added to payroll in that month. Yeah. So we, I think we saw something similar with the uh, stimulus of 2008, 2009. Uh, that is the measures that the president and uh, the White House was using indicated jobs that had been uh, saved or created uh, by the stimulus plan. Uh, a lot of people who were trying to fill out paperwork for that frankly, weren't doing a great job for understandable reasons. Yes, that's true. And so that said, it says, hey, we're, we're sort of sailing on a rocky sea over waters we have not seen before. And that makes us, or it should make us, cautious in making a, a normal interpretation of numbers that come to us. But we got that good um, employment data, Caleb, as you know, well, but then last week, we got some very good numbers on retail sales. Um, and I would suggest those numbers may be a little safer uh, to celebrate than were the employment numbers. Um, so we had, we had a big boom in retail sales. And you normally expect to have a big boom when you've had nothing before. So our economy is a command economy. It's being opened up gradually. And it was sort of interesting when people had a chance to go shopping, recognizing that they have bank accounts and savings accounts that, generally speaking, are full of cash uh, that could not be spent anywhere other than Amazon or any other place that would deliver. They went shopping big time. Um, and so that is a more positive signal or a more reliable signal, I would suggest, than the employment data. But it's reinforcing of the positive employment data. Uh, so I want to get back to something you just said, and you just sort of glossed over it, and that is we live in a command economy. Uh, and we, I, we, you and I spoke a few weeks ago just briefly, and uh, Americans aren't used to seeing what looks like a command economy. So, so walk us through the steps of understanding why the United States, in your view, is at least temporarily, a command economy? Well, it, it seems to me that the stronger influence uh, in the executive branch, in the White House, with respect to the coronavirus, the stronger influence came from people who are charged with responsibilities for public health, for helping us to avoid tragedies of any virus or any biological form and so those voices became dominant and understandably, another loud voice, another location that began to dominate was New York, New York City, the hotspot in our nation with respect to the virus. And so 
the average person begins to hear reports from New York City several times a day on television programs. And the president holds press conferences every day where the public health people hold forth. The virus is a killer. We know that. We also know that somehow people have got to make a living and life has to go on. And so that's where the trade-off has come. And as a country, in terms of policy, we tilted toward shutting down as a way to try to minimize the harms. And then that varied across states. Some states, California being a prime example, was the first mover in shutting down the entire state. And then others followed in different ways. And now we are in a reopening period that can back down. Uh, as an example, uh, restaurants in my little town of Clemson, South Carolina, gradually opened. But the rules of the health authority says if one employee is found to have be tested positive for coronavirus, your restaurant has to close down for 14 more days. And so we're on rocky water uh, in this command economy as we stumble, I would suggest, toward a more meaningful recovery. Uh, in auto production, and this is something that we, we talked about a, a few weeks ago, uh, many assembly plants were shut down. Um, I don't know the extent to which they've reopened. But this has had a lot of effects in, on the new car market, obviously, but also on the used car market. So what have you seen in auto production that uh, is at least interesting, if not good or bad? There's some things that are encouraging, Caleb. And, and uh, I would also uh, hark back for a moment to the command economy. There's a temptation, always a temptation. Uh, with respect to very smart people or people who consider themselves to be very smart, and that's probably all of us, but there's a great temptation to think, hey, uh, I can just push some buttons and issue some orders and, and put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We can get this economy perking again if we just issue enough commands. We can never fully appreciate how complex a market economy is with millions of linkages and millions of interdependencies. And now let's get to the auto industry and your question. When the auto industry attempted to come back online, they've got to get parts from thousands of sources, more than thousands. And so there's somebody else shut down somewhere else where they need a part and they have to figure out how we're going to get around that dead end. And they're putting it together. Uh, the most recent data on retail sales showed considerable strength for auto sales, which means there will be considerable strength for orders back to the assembly plants, which means they will be bumping into those constraints. And in addition to that, they are having to deal with the coronavirus constraint itself. That is, workers who may not be able to get to work or some who do and are fearful about their health. And so we have that bumpy, uneven startup for a major industry, which will play a fundamental role in our efforts to accelerate our economy. So uh, you describe all the thousands of parts that go into an automobile. That's a bit more complicated than making a pencil. Uh, and presumably there are uh, <laughs> industries 
uh, like autos. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, televisions, any number of consumer electronics and, and things we might not even think of that we have yet to really see a lot of the effects in terms of price and availability for basic goods that people want to consume. That's true. And and part of that may have to do with the fact that retailing has just reopened. Uh, sort of interesting, Caleb, when you look at what people collectively across our nation chose to spend most of their money on in terms of retail, the most recent data for last month, the number one item was clothing a huge surge in clothing sales. The second item was furniture. And I thought, well, gee whiz, what are people doing going out buying furniture after they have been shut up for several weeks or months? But it was exercise equipment, which fell into that category of furniture. And so to to some extent, the things that people were hungry to buy were things that clothing, and some people suggest most of that was for tops and not bottoms because they were communicating virtually. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so there's a big surge in top sales and exercise equipment uh, that took place. And there was a big surge in auto sales, as indicated, uh, probably pickup trucks that went off the lots. What explains that? If, if you have a, even, even a hypothesis, not really, other than the fact that pickup trucks have sort of been at the top of the heap now for recent years. Uh, conventional passenger car sales have been headed south with an acceleration. Pickup trucks are in, but other than that, I don't have any other theoretical explanation. It may be that, well, maybe, you know, as we, as you thinking while you speak, uh, it could be somewhat similar to the surge that we are seeing in small trailers, camping trailers. Big surge there. Uh, when I travel, what little I do, I see them on the highways, the interstates. And so it appears that there are families who say, well, we are a little cautious about flying off for a vacation. Uh, let's just take some of that money and buy us a trailer and we'll go camping and we'll be safe. There may be the same feeling about those big pickup trucks. If you didn't know that there was a, a viral pandemic going around the globe right now, uh, would you have been surprised by what happened in the housing market between uh, March, April, and May? Uh, 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 to some extent. But what happened with construction varied across the states. Some state governors declared construction to be an essential activity, and so construction was not shut down in those states. Other governors did not make that same declaration, and so construction was shut down in their states. And so we have a mixed bag when we look across the 50 states. The thing that is surprising to me uh, is when we look at the most recent data, large increase in permits being issued, large increase in new home sales. That sector looks healthy, and it's been an ongoing sector. And so I guess that's why relative to most everything else, it did not square with the coronavirus problem. For example, if you look at commodities, Caleb, and price increases, if you look at the producer price index and say, okay, are there any producers of anything that can get a price increase in a world that is practically shut down? The answer is yes. 
producers of plywood, wood products used for construction. Those prices are rising rather markedly. And of course, we all know that some of the groceries in the grocery stores, those price increases came through too, as we decided, had to discover, rediscover home cooking and, and doing shopping there. So, so in a way to try to wrap up an answer to your question, I would say we've got a really interesting mixed bag with construction because of partial shutdowns in some places, not in others, but it does appear to be a healthy sector. Um, do you have any explanation for why the stock market appears to be engaged in what I saw described on Twitter as the Terminator rally, which is you can shoot it, you can uh, punch it in the face, you can do all sorts of things to it. And and for, for whatever reason, uh, the stock market appears to just continue to go up. I do not. Uh, and if I if I even thought I had an explanation, I probably wouldn't share it because it would turn out to be wrong later. I've never been I've never been any good at making a forecast about what financial markets are going to do and what the equity markets are going to do. I have to say I certainly am enjoying it, and most everyone else is who has a four hundred one k or has money in the market. But uh, I do hope that uh, the investors all taken together are seeing light at the end of a long tunnel, but it's a tunnel that has been very dark. And it may just be a 40-watt bulb that they see at the end, but given the darkness of the tunnel, it looks very bright. Maybe that's a theory, Caleb, about what's happening to the S&P, the Dow Jones, and other aggregate measures of market performance. We've seen a lot of uh, state-level deregulation, some uh, apparently temporary regulation at at the federal level. Um, Obviously, the home delivery of alcohol is one that uh, consumers will not be uh, quick to give up. But uh, should policymakers be concerned about uh, reinstituting uh, regulations that they've shed as a result of the coronavirus? I think so. Uh, the, the, we were already in a sort of season of deregulation when the Trump administration came into office. As we know, uh, they took immediate steps to hit the brake pedal on new rules, new proposed rules. They also came in with their pull-up two old rules for every new one you plant. They delivered on that promise until last year. It turned out to be 1.7 pulled up for each one planted. That's still a rather ambitious uh, and I would say, given their goal, successful outcome for moving away from an age of high regulation, which we have been in for a nation for decades now, to a new age uh, where the number of pages in the Federal Register, a very crude indicator, have fallen from in the 80,000s to in the 60,000s. But some things are being learned as a result of this coronavirus thing. Every constraint, I guess Warren Buffett has this wonderful expression, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. The tide has gone out. For example, we realize, gee whiz, there are state regulations that prohibit doctors from trying to meet an emergency in New York from some other state saying, hey, I'll just drive over and help out. No, sorry, you're not certified to practice medicine in New York. 
you're from Connecticut or you're from South Carolina. And so suddenly those rules begin to sort of seem nonsensical in a world where you're trying to solve problems. I think the same thing is true for countless other rules, delivery of food, uh, delivery of pharmaceutical products, on and on. And so I'm sort of hoping that people will become generally better informed about the regulatory constraints that have been affecting their lives for years and demanding political action to let's pull up more of those regulations as we attempt to plant new ones. Let's keep the pulling up going strongly. Bruce Yandel is Dean Emeritus of Clemson University's College of Business and Behavioral Science. We spoke Monday. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.